You know, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the most well-known part of all of Jesus' teaching, yet I would say at the same time that it is probably one of the least understood. You know, Jesus was a master orator in the sense that he was able to speak in such a way that was at the same time extremely simple, and yet at the same time those same words would be extremely profound. Like he was able to speak in a way that could be clearly understood by children, and yet those same words that he spoke were so pregnant with meaning that they have been pondered upon, they have been considered, they have been talked about and debated on university campuses, in meeting halls, by the brightest of minds, generation after generation for 2,000 years, and we still have not really plumbed the depths of their full layers, of, of all the layers of meaning. We have not exhausted them still after all this time. So we're going to take a look at how this most famous sermon, this most famous speech that Jesus gave begins. Uh, we see here in verse 1 of Matthew's gospel. We're going to jump right in. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. At this point, early on in Jesus' ministry, news about him was spreading like wildfire and rumors were rampant that maybe, just maybe, he was the one. The one. The one that Israel had been waiting for. The one that Israel had been hoping for. The one whom God had promised to send them. The Messiah who would be a descendant of King David and who would come sent from God to establish God's kingdom. And so the, the rumors were rampant that maybe, just maybe, this is the one. News about him was spreading like crazy. We read at the end of chapter 4, just, a, just in the previous chapter, we read the setting for what happens now in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. We read this, that he, that's Jesus, he went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So his fame spread and crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This means that huge crowds were flocking to see Jesus. They wanted to meet him. They wanted to uh, hear him teach. They wanted to see him. And some of these people, these locations they were coming from, this was over 100 miles away. Can you imagine traveling 100 miles by foot in order to see someone and hear them speak? And so Jesus, he sees these crowds descending upon him. And it says that he went up on a mountain. Now, here in Colorado, we would not call the place that he went up, we would not really call that a mountain. We would refer to it as a large hill or maybe a foothill. I have some pictures up here to kind of, that where the building is, that's actually the, the hill, not the ones in the back. But that is the hill of the Beatitudes is what it's called. And so, you know, we would generally think of this as a foothill. It was a small mountain. But as Jesus goes up on this mountain, don't think for a second that the reason he went up there was to escape the crowds. He wasn't trying to get away from it. He wasn't saying, wow, there's a lot of people here. I need to get away from all these people and go off with just a few people and talk to them. No, Jesus went up on the mountain in order to speak to the people so that he could be clearly heard. And we know this because we know that Jesus spoke to the crowd and not the small group of disciples because at the end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7, we read this phrase that says that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching, which tells us that Jesus was speaking to the crowd of people who had come to be his disciples. 
So when Jesus goes up on the mountain, we read here in verse 1, and his disciples come after him. Don't think of that in the narrow sense of Jesus' 12 disciples, because actually at this point, Jesus hadn't chosen his 12 disciples yet. He only does that in Matthew chapter 10. This is only Matthew chapter 5. So when it says here that Jesus' disciples came up to him after he went up on the mountain, understand that in the broad sense of disciples, meaning that the disciples refers to this crowd who's come to hear Jesus speak and hear his teaching. So have this picture in your mind. Huge crowds are descending upon Jesus there on the shores of the lake Galilee. And Jesus goes up on a hill not to escape the crowd, but rather to address the crowd who have come to find out who he is and what he's all about. And it says that Jesus sat down to teach. In that culture, the custom was that the teacher would sit and the hearers would stand. Now look how far we have come from biblical practice in our day. If we were really going to be biblical, we need to get me like a lazy boy recliner and you guys would all stand. But you know, if you're a speaker, that, there's some advantages to that for both the speaker and the hearer. As a, as a hearer, you're probably not going to fall asleep. But as a speaker, you better be interesting because people are just going to walk away after a while if you're not, right? So um, Jesus sits down. He's taking the posture of a teacher in that culture. Verse 2, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now what Jesus is about to say to the crowd has long been recognized as the very sum of Jesus' teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is the closest thing that Jesus ever gave to a manifesto or a declaration. You can think of the Sermon on the Mount as the declaration of the kingdom. Just as the American revolutionaries had their declaration of independence, their declaration of the principles which they were going to found this new society upon, just as Karl Marx had his communist manifesto and this declaration, this manifesto upon which his communist movement would be based. Long before either of those, Jesus Christ made his declaration, his manifesto, in which he said, this is what my kingdom is all about. I am a king, Jesus would say, and I am a king and I have come to establish a kingdom and these are the terms upon which my kingdom and its people operate. And the Sermon on the Mount, it presented a radically different agenda than what the people of Israel expected from the Messiah. It would have been incredibly shocking. That's the thing that you need to keep in mind as you read this. It would have been incredibly shocking to the people who first heard this. You've got to understand, these people of Israel, they had been expecting a king in the traditional sense of a king, right? Somebody who's going to give you political supremacy over other nations, military prowess. He's going to usher in an era of material wealth. But instead, think about who this guy is. Think about this man, Jesus, comes along. He's from a working class family. He's currently unemployed, but before he was unemployed, he was a construction worker. And he's currently homeless, and he doesn't have a single penny. Like, he doesn't have any money at all. That is not what they were expecting in a king and in a Messiah by any means. And then Jesus begins talking about this kingdom that he's come to establish. And rather than talking about the material blessings that he's going to bring into their lives, he talks only about spiritual blessings. It's a completely different agenda than those people were expecting to hear or even hoping to hear. It was absolutely countercultural. In a society that valued material possessions, Jesus came along and said, in my kingdom, 
It's not the rich who are blessed, but the poor in spirit. In my kingdom, it's not the powerful who are great, but the meek. In my kingdom, it's not the bullies who win, but the peacemakers and the merciful and those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You have to understand, this would have been incredibly shocking to the people who heard it for the first time. It flew right in the face of everything that their society thought. It basically was the complete opposite of what their society said. And may I suggest to you that that is exactly the same case in our, in our day as well. The Sermon on the Mount, this manifesto of the kingdom of God is just as countercultural in our day, perhaps even more so than it was in their day. You see, think about the society that we live in. The society is so focused on self, right? It tells us that if you want to be truly happy, then true happiness is found in focusing on yourself. Right? Love yourself, promote yourself, promote your personal brand, right? Look out for yourself first. Look out for number one. Take care of yourself first. But Jesus, what does he do? He comes along and he says, no, crucify yourself. That's what you need to do. Rather than trying to love yourself more, love your enemies. Rather than protecting yourself, forgive those who sin against you. Rather than looking out for yourself first, seek first the kingdom of God and trust that he loves you and that he will take care of you. And don't you see how radically countercultural that is, not only for people at that time, but for people in our time as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents a new way to be human. A different way of living that's radically countercultural. It's very different to every culture and every society. You see, the Sermon on the Mount tells us how we will live when Jesus Christ is our King. How you will live if Jesus Christ is your King. It lays out for the disciple and for the prospective disciple how making Jesus your King makes a difference in your everyday life. So let's get into it. We read in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this first section here uh, from verse 3 to 12 of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. You've probably heard that term. Now, uh, that, but that, that word's kind of confusing, right? Like what exactly is a Beatitude? Well, actually the meaning is extremely simple. We've just made it sound more complicated in English by using a Latin term. Beatitudes, that's a Latin term. The word Beatus in Latin simply means happy. And, uh, you know, for example, I speak Hungarian, and in Hungarian, the Beatitudes are simply called the happy sayings, which is a lot more understandable than Beatitudes. And in fact, that's all that Beatitudes means. It's Latin for the happy sayings. And the reason is because there's nine sayings here from verses 12, or verse 3 to verse 12, nine sayings, and they each one of them begin with the phrase in the original language. They didn't say blessed. They said, oh, how happy is this person or that person. You see, here in the Beatitudes, in these happy sayings, here's what we're going to see. Jesus is laying out the path to true happiness. So again, in the original language, these nine sayings, if you would read them, they simply say, oh, how happy is this person or that person. Now, the English translators of the Bible in the late Middle Ages, they uh, chose to use the word blessed instead of happy. It would be kind of like if I said to you, you know, happy is this person, and somebody has to say, what did he say? And you say, well, he said, blessed is this person, right? Now, why would they go and change up something that's so straightforwardly uh, happy? Well, well, 
most likely and very likely it was that they thought that it, the word happy has a very trite connotation and that the word blessed is really more, well, for lack of a better word, it's more religious, right? It's more churchy. And uh, actually, though, what's interesting is the word happy is used many times throughout the Bible where in English the Bible translators chose to use the word blessed instead of directly translating as happy. For example, Psalm 33 verse 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But if you read the original text, it reads like this. Oh, how happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Uh, How about Psalm 33? 32 verse 1, blessed is the person whose transgression is forgiven. Now, again, verses, oh, how happy is the person whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Now think about, doesn't that just give those phrases a different tone? It does, doesn't it? That's the tone they were originally meant to have. They were meant to express elation and happiness. You know, our word blessed, it, it, it can mean happy, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean happy. Like it doesn't communicate sheer elation. Blessed doesn't communicate that you have a smile on your face and lightness in your heart. You see, the Bible, though, uh, you see, you can be blessed. Let me say this last thing. You can be blessed without actually being happy, at least in the English understanding of blessed. Like you can be blessed, I'm blessed. I'm just not very happy. But you see, the Bible says, the Bible would say this, the Bible knows nothing of sullen, sour Christians. You know that? Like, I don't know if you've ever met these people, but, but you've seen them. They look like they got baptized in lemon juice. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, but I would say this, the Bible knows nothing of sullen, sour Christianity. You know, we are the people who have been given new life. You know that? We are the people who have been given a hope which shines beyond this life and beyond this world. And we have every reason to be the most happy people on earth. When Jesus spoke these words, understand this too. Jesus was a man who spoke in the common language. And when Jesus is speaking to common people, everyday man, he says this. He uses a word, instead of using a, a more religious term like blessed, Jesus uses the word, very simple common word, happy. And that's how we're going to read it today, if you don't mind. So the English Bible translators, again, translating in the late Middle Ages, they felt the English word happy was very shallow in its connotation. And and I agree with them in, in a way that that can be very true. The word happy in our modern understanding, you know, has a sense of just, you know, comfort, shallow comforts and shallow being like entertained in the moment. But what I say is, instead of changing things up on what Jesus said, let's just reclaim that word happy, right? Like, let's understand happiness not in the shallow sense of a momentary fleeting pleasure, but let's understand it in the deep sense, the true sense of happiness, which is what Jesus was talking about when he spoke. So here in the Beatitudes, the happy sayings, Jesus is laying out the path to true happiness. So the title of today's message is, How to Be Happy. Now happiness, in the truest sense, 
is what all people are ultimately seeking. In fact, it's, it's the number one motivating factor for, for things that we do. And, you know, you, yourself, you are seeking happiness. Me too. You know, you want to be happy. I want to be happy. Think about it. Why do people get married? Why do people choose certain careers? Why do people want to have families? Well, ultimately, the things that we do, we do in some way because we want to be happy and we believe that those things will help us be happy, at least to some degree. And, and even think about people who, uh, who are really into self-denial, right? Think about like athletes who deny themselves momentary pleasures or who keep themselves very disciplined or, or maybe students who are very disciplined. The reason that they discipline themselves, the reason that they even practice self-denial is because they too are seeking happiness because they believe that if they deny themselves something in the moment, they get the opportunity to reach a higher level of happiness. So ultimately, they're looking for happiness as well. The whole world is longing for and seeking after happiness. But sadly, many people in the world are seeking happiness in ways which will ultimately fail them and in ways that will sometimes leave them miserable. But what Jesus says in these happy sayings, he says, if you really want to be happy, I'm going to tell you how. Verse 3 again. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now think about this. Try to hear it for the first time. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Seriously? Happy are the poor in spirit? Wait a second. Don't you think that by definition, the poor in spirit are actually the most unhappy people in the world? The consensus in today's society would be that if you want to be happy, you need to boost your self-image. You need to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, right? If you really want to be happy, you need to start believing in yourself. You need to look yourself in the mirror and say, you're the big dog, you can do it, you're, you're the best, right? You need to believe in yourself, you need to love yourself more. Jesus would say, no, that's not it. These are the attitudes which lead to true happiness, and the first step to true happiness is realizing and recognizing and acknowledging that you are spiritually bankrupt, why? You realize this is a prerequisite to receiving the kingdom of God. This is the number one prerequisite to receiving the kingdom of God. The number one condition for receiving Jesus as your Lord, as your king, being part of his kingdom, is first acknowledging your spiritual poverty. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean to just think down on yourself. You know that? It doesn't mean to just think, I'm insignificant and I'm worthless and I'm just the worst. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you confess that you have nothing to offer. You have nothing to offer, nothing to put on the table before God to approve yourself before him. You see, the poor in spirit are spiritually what the poor in this world are financially. To be poor means you have no assets, you have nothing in the bank, you've got nothing to your name, you're just broke. To be poor means to realize and acknowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt. The word that Jesus used here, to be poor, it wasn't like American poor where you've got cable TV and two cars in the driveway, right? No, Jesus is poor that he's using here this word, it refers to a beggar. Someone who's so dirt poor, like destitute, that they have nothing. They have to beg for everything that they receive and everything that they need. 
And being poor of spirit, recognizing your spiritual poverty, is an absolute prerequisite to receiving the kingdom of heaven. Being poor in spirit is not something you can manufacture by just trying to be self-deprecating. No, recognizing your spiritual poverty, that's something that happens when you get a true understanding of who God is and who you are. When you really understand who God is and who you really are, then you cannot help but realize and recognize your spiritual poverty. For example, in the book of Isaiah, the book of the prophet Isaiah, for the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, we read that the prophet Isaiah, he comes and he pronounces a series of woes upon the people of Judah for their sins. You know, woe is basically like he's condemning them for their wrongdoing. He says, woe to you. You know, you guys are a bunch of filthy sinners. Woe to you. God's going to judge you guys because you're nasty and you're gross and you're unfaithful and you're just the worst, right? He says, you should be ashamed of yourselves and you better watch out because God's going to get you. Woe to you for five chapters. But then something happens in chapter 6 that changes Isaiah's tone completely. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read that Isaiah gets this vision, this vision of God seated on the throne and his majesty fills the temple, right? And he gets this vision of, of who God is and God's high and lifted up, seated on this great throne. And it says that at that point, Isaiah's tone completely changes. And suddenly he stops saying, woe to you, and he starts saying, woe is me, Woe is me, is what he says, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I am lost. When Isaiah got a glimpse of God, he immediately realized his own spiritual poverty, that he's got nothing to offer. He's, he's got nothing to put on the table. Instead of saying, woe to you, now he stops saying that and he says, you know what? Woe is me. And that's what it looks like to recognize and realize your spiritual poverty. And that is the first step, Jesus says. That is the first step to becoming actually happy. To acknowledge before God that you are spiritually broke. Verse 4. Oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, how happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, that doesn't that sound like a contradiction of terms? I mean, how can you be happy and mourn at the same time? But what you need to understand about the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes right here, is that they represent a progression. See, they, they all go together and they form a progression. I'm going to show you that as we go along. The first step that Jesus gives to finding true happiness is recognizing and acknowledging your spiritual poverty. But he says, don't stop there. It doesn't stop there. The next step, once you've come to terms with your spiritual condition, is to mourn over that condition, to be grieved over it, to weep over it. It's one thing, you see, to acknowledge that you are spiritually poor, but it's another thing altogether to be grieved over it, to mourn over that condition. You see, that's the difference between confession and contrition. You guys all know that when somebody has hurt you, it's one thing if they admit that what they did was wrong, but it's another thing altogether if you can see that they feel, they, they feel that contrition over it, to that they weep over it, that they're grieved by it. You see, the word that Jesus used here, it doesn't mean to just be a little bit sad, like, bummer, right? It, it's, it means to be deeply grieved. Paul the Apostle, he says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. 
That's what we're talking about here. You see, it's when you realize and recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt, that you're a sinner, and you mourn over that. You weep over that and you repent. That is when God comes to you and says, I forgive you. You see, happy are those who mourn because they will be comforted. They will be comforted by the only comfort that can truly relieve that distress, the forgiveness and the grace of God. In Luke chapter 7, we read uh, about an occasion when Jesus was invited to somebody's house for dinner. And the man who invited him for dinner was a well-known man in high standing. He was a very religious man. And while they're eating dinner, right, probably with a group of people, uh, this man's friends, this woman comes knocking on the door and just comes right in, it seems. And she was a known prostitute. Like, people knew who this woman was. She was known in town as a prostitute. She comes in, she interrupts their meal, and she bows down at Jesus' feet and just starts weeping. I mean, imagine if you're having dinner with some friends or even some, you know, high-level people in society or something, your boss, and, and this woman comes in who's a prostitute and just starts weeping all over your feet. And the people, uh, you know, it says that she was weeping and then with her tears, as her tears fell on Jesus' feet, she wiped the, the dust off his feet with the tears. She washed his feet with her tears. And the people there sitting at the table with Jesus, they say, you know, Jesus, if you were really a prophet of God, you would know that this woman is a sinner. And then Jesus did something interesting. He turned to the woman. He didn't even address those people who talked to him. He just ignored what they said. He turns to the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then he turns to those people he was eating dinner with who looked down on that woman, right? And he said, you know what? It's those who have been forgiven much who love much. You see, the difference between that woman and those men was that that woman realized that she was a sinner. She acknowledged that she was spiritually poor and she was grieved by it. She was grieved over her sins. She wept over them. And as a result, she was comforted with the comfort of forgiveness the next verse verse 5 it says oh how happy are the meek for they shall inherit the earth oh how happy are the meek you see once you recognize your spiritual poverty and you mourn over it and you repent of your sins and you receive the comfort that comes from being forgiven by God the next step in this path to happiness is meekness Again, this is completely countercultural, right? This is the opposite of what anyone would expect or think. This is the opposite of what you're going to get in a self-help tape, right? Uh, we would never think that the meek will inherit the earth. Instead, we generally think that the meek get nowhere, nice guys finish last, it's the tough, it's the overbearing, it's the pushy who succeed in this world. But Jesus says no. The next step to happiness, once you've recognized your spiritual poverty and mourned over it and you've been comforted by the comfort of forgiveness, the next step to true happiness is meekness. Now, let me explain what meekness is because I think that meekness, meek, the word meek is one of the most uh, misunderstood words in our language. We generally equate meekness with weakness or passivity or letting people walk on you or trample you, but that's not what meekness is all about. See, meekness should be thought of in these terms. It's power under control. And the best picture of meekness would be like a horse, right? A, a, if you ever stood next to a horse, they just have these gigantic muscles. They're amazing. And a horse, though, that horses learn to keep their power under control and submit to a master and use their power in the right ways. 
So that horse that has learned to take instruction from his master, and he's learned to the discipline of bringing his great power under control, that's what it means to be meek. So what does it mean for you and me to be meek? Interestingly, one of the only autobiographical statements that Jesus makes to describe his own character is he says, I am meek. Now think about that. Here's Jesus, God of the universe. It tells us several times in the Bible that Jesus, through him, all things were created. And, and he's the creator of all things. He's the God of the universe, and he brings that great power under control. He brings it in submission to his Father, and he uses it in ways that were in accordance with the Father's heart and the Father's mission. He's the ultimate example of meekness. He may have been gentle towards people who are broken, gentle towards children, but it certainly wasn't out of weakness. That was power under control, brought under submission to the Father. So what does it mean for us to be meek? What it means is this. It means bringing our whole lives, all of ourselves, under the control of God, like a horse to its master. We choose not just to do our own thing and just romp around, but we bring our lives into submission to God and we make him our master. We bring our strength and our minds and our entire being under submission to him. A life submitted to God. That's the third step on this road to happiness. Verse 6, Oh, how happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What are the things that you see people around you hungering and thirsting after? I see people hungering and thirsting after power, authority, recognition, success, comfort, personal fulfillment. But Jesus says the path to true happiness is to hunger and thirst after righteousness to pursue it like a starving person looking for food, like a thirsty person who needs something to drink and they can't think about anything else. You're on a quest, right? You're pursuing it, pursuing righteousness, seeking after that which is pure, seeking after that which is right, that which is true. If you want to be truly happy, Jesus says, then hunger and thirst after these things. Passionately pursue truth. Passionately pursue righteousness. And bringing your life, after you bring your life into submission to God, the next step that leads to true happiness is passionately pursuing truth and righteousness. You know, there's this interesting verse that I, I've always found interesting in Hebrews chapter 1, where it's speaking about Jesus, and it says this, you, speaking to Jesus, says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. What's that saying? It's saying this, that Jesus was the happiest person around. He was the happiest person who ever lived, the happiest guy on the block. And why was that so? Why was he the happiest one? Here's why. Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You see, there's a major correlation there between holiness and happiness. And I always like to put it this way, that holiness leads to happiness. Why does God want us to be holy? It's because God loves us and wants us to be happy. And holiness leads to happiness. You see, holiness, a lot of people think, okay, what is holiness? I think it's the absence of that which is wrong. No, I would say 
Don't think of it as absence. Seriously, think, holiness indicates substance. You know that? It is the substance that you long for, that I long for. It's the substance of that which is good and right and true. It's reality. That's what we long for. We long for that substance of holiness, the substance of truth, the substance of that which is right. I believe that all people innately have a hunger and thirst inside of them for that. But you know what happens is that that hunger and thirst for substance and truth and rightness, just like physical hunger, that hunger can easily be suppressed by other things. For example, my wife is a good cook. She's a, I, I love to eat her food and she cooks very healthy. And, uh, you know, she, she's great at it. But imagine this. If imagine one day I'm on my way home and I decide to stop at the gas station, Right? I'm stopping at the gas station, and I just load up on jelly beans and Red Bull, right? Just packing it in. Hostess cupcakes, nacho cheese sauce. I'm just drinking it out of those little plastic cups, you know? And then guess what happens? After I do that for a while, I'm no longer hungry. I'm no longer thirsty. My pain, my hunger pains are gone. My thirst is quenched. But guess what? It, it's my hunger for, which was for, natural hunger for good, substantial things has been suppressed because I filled it all up with junk. And the, I no longer feel the hunger pains. I no longer feel the thirst, but it's not because I took in substance that my body was craving. It's because I suppressed my natural desire with a bunch of junk. Now, deep down, I believe that every person desires the substance of truth and rightness. But most people end up suppressing those desires by hungering and thirsting after other things, which are like junk food, right? Things which will suppress your hunger pains for a moment, but they will never fulfill, and ultimately they just leave you really unhealthy, right? So true happiness is found in first submitting your life to God and then pursuing truth and righteousness. Pursuing truth by knowing God and knowing his word and pursuing righteousness, seeking to be righteous like God is righteous and seeking to do righteousness in our lives and in our actions. Happy is the person who pursues those things because that is the person who will be satisfied both now and for eternity. Verse seven. Oh, how happy are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. You know, once you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt and you experience the comfort of having your sins forgiven and you give your life over to God and make him Lord of your life and you begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness, you cannot help but become merciful towards other people because you understand that you have received mercy from God. And you're no longer finding your happiness in the fact that you think you're better than other people but you begin to find happiness and joy in dishing out mercy and grace to other people because you understand that God has given you so much mercy and grace yourself. You know, several times in the Gospels, Jesus says something along these lines. He says it a few different ways, but here's what he says. He says, regarding mercy, with the same measure that you use, it will be measured unto you. The same measure that you measure unto others, it will be measured unto you. And he's speaking about mercy. Now, I like to think of it like an ice cream scooper, right? Like a big, you got different sizes of ice cream scoopers and God says, you know, you, you pick. You pick the ice cream scooper that you're gonna use in serving other people and then I'll use the same scoop with you, 
Right? That's kind of what he's saying. He says, go ahead and pick. We've got all these different sizes, from the littlest ones to big giant scoopers. I'll let you choose. But whichever one you choose, I'm going to use that same one for you, okay? In other words, if you, if you want to use the little scooper with other people and how you dish out mercy and grace, then, then I'll use that little scooper with you too, says God. But if you want me to use the big scoop for you, then I expect you to use the big scoop when, in your dealings with other people as well. So happy is the person who is generous in dishing out mercy and grace to others who uses the big scoop because God has used the big scoop with you. Verse 8, oh, how happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in heart means to be free from malice, free from guile. It means to be a person of integrity, not sneaky, not having ulterior motives, but being pure, being straightforward. This is part of the work that God does inside a person who first acknowledges their spiritual poverty and weeps over it and receives the comfort of forgiveness and submits their life to God and pursues truth and righteousness and shows mercy to others. God begins to work in that person's life and begins to change their heart and begins to cleanse them and purify them. The theological word we use for this is sanctification. It's the process of God going into your Life and just rotorootering it, right? Like cleaning house and doing work from the inside out and changing you from the inside out. So happy is the person who's pure of heart, who's cleansed and made pure by God. They will see God. They will have an increased ability to recognize God and his handiwork in nature, in his word. And of course, one day they will get to see him face to face. Verse 9, we read, Oh, how happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. One of the final steps here towards being truly happy is to get involved in God's work. You see that the work that God is doing is ultimately a work of reconciliation, of making peace. Paul the Apostle, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that Jesus came to reconcile all things, to himself in Christ. He came to reconcile, to make peace between man and God, between men and men and women and women where there's been division caused by sin. Jesus came to reconcile. And so we too, we will find true happiness when we become agents of God's reconciliation, peacemakers, where we make peace, where sin has caused strife and division. We help people make peace with each other and ultimately we help people make peace with God. And when we do that, we will be called sons of God because then we are taking part in the same work that the Son of God came to take part in, to tear down the walls of division between God and man, between different races and nations, between different economic classes and peoples. Ultimately, God is going to establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And here's the deal. He's invited us to be part of that work. He's given us, 2 Corinthians says, the ministry of reconciliation. He's made us his ambassadors and agents of reconciliation in the world. So, oh, how happy is the person who pours out their life, their time, and their resources. And they focus their activity to actively take part in the work of God in the world. 
You know, so many people think that true happiness is found in spending more time, uh, spending their time, spending more money, more vacations, uh, doing more stuff for themselves, more vacations, more trinkets, more gadgets, more hobbies. But Jesus says, no, this is where you find true happiness. Here's the way. Pour out your life. Pour out your life for something that matters. Pour out your life. Devote yourself to the work of God, just like the Son of God poured out his life for you. That's where true happiness is found. And we end the Beatitudes here in verse 11 and 12. Oh, how happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, the greatest insult that you should ever be able to give a Christian would be to say, you know what, you're no different than anybody else. That should be the greatest insult that you could ever give a Christian because that is inherently what it means to be a Christian. It means to be utterly different. It means to live with a different agenda, seeking after a different kingdom than, than everybody else in this world. To live differently in a very countercultural way because you're on a completely different track. And if you live that way, Jesus says, it is inevitable. You will stick out. You will be different. People may revile you for it. They may not like it. They may make false accusations against you. But if they do, you know what? Rejoice. Be happy because you're in good company. You know, any dead fish can flow downstream. Any dead fish can go with the flow. But it takes a live one to swim against the stream. And sometimes when you go against the current and you swim against the stream, you're going to get some resistance. That's normal, actually. If you don't get any resistance for the way that you live as a follower of Jesus, then that should be a red flag to you. That should be a warning. Maybe you're not doing it right, you know? Maybe something's up. Maybe you're actually just kind of going with the flow and not actually going against the current. Maybe you're not actually following Jesus in a way that's countercultural. We, we're going to continue this study next week, so we're going to leave off here. But you need to know this, that this, this thing that we just studied, these happy sayings, the Beatitudes, this is the foundation of all of Jesus' teaching. This is the foundation of Jesus' teaching. It's also the foundation of biblical teaching, summed up in a very few short sentences, just packed with meaning. I could have gone into so much more about each of these. But you need to understand, this is how to be happy, truly happy, in the way that your heart longs to be happy, in the truest sense of happiness. It begins with acknowledging that you are spiritually bankrupt. And then mourning over it and grieving over your sinful condition so that you can be comforted by receiving God's forgiveness of your sins. And once you've been forgiven, you don't stop there. You bring your whole life into submission to God. You make him your Lord. And, and then you pursue wholeheartedly truth and righteousness. And God begins to cleanse your life. You show mercy to others. God cleanses your life from the inside out. Increasingly, you're a different person. You're a changed person because God's been working in your heart. And then you dedicate your life to his work, to joining him on his mission. And if people don't get it, or they give you a hard time about it, or you experience resistance because it's so countercultural the way you're living, well, you take that with a grain of salt. In fact, you're not surprised by it. In fact, you expect it. And if it doesn't happen, then that's a red flag to you that you're not doing it right, right? And maybe you're not actually living counterculturally according to Jesus' countercultural kingdom that you're called to be a part of. 
If you are living that way, it will stand out. So let me just ask you this in closing. Where are you in this progression that we looked at today? Now, some of you are here today, and I would gather that maybe you're right at the beginning. Like you're still at the point where you need to recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt. You haven't even taken that step yet. Others of you, you might be farther along. But let me encourage you today, this is the path to true happiness and follow it all the way and you will find true happiness. This is the foundation of the gospel of the kingdom which Jesus preached. That you cannot save yourself, that you are spiritually bankrupt, but in spite of that, God loves you more than you can even imagine. And if you will come to him and you will let him do his work in your life, he will make you into a new person. He'll give you a new life and he'll lead you in a way that is true, lasting happiness, which no one can ever take away from you. True happiness, which is for this life and for the life to come. So let me ask you this. Will you come to him today and follow him down that path to true happiness? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you want us to know true happiness. Lord, we see as we look at this, Lord, the the plan for true happiness that you lay out is so different than that which which is common to our culture and our society. And Lord, we want to say, we've tried that one. We've seen other people try it. We realize how bankrupt that is, how, how it doesn't work, how it leaves people empty. It promises so much, but it doesn't deliver. But Lord, we see your way. It's different. It's countercultural. And Lord, we want to walk in that way. So Lord, would you make us people like you as you describe yourself here in this text? Lord, would you make us like you? Would, it, would you help us to acknowledge where we stand before you and grieve and mourn over it and give our lives to you? Lord, I pray for everybody here. Each of us are probably at different spots along this progression. Lord, I pray that we would make the next step and that we'd find true life and true happiness in you. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.